Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. We had an amazing full house this week at the Black Box for stories on the theme games. We partnered with the Northern Ireland Science Festival and the atmosphere was electric. Next up was Beat the Cluck, a game to see whose chicken could cluck most. So I come from the beautifully scenic middle of nowhere, South Armagh. Oh, are there any more South Armagh cultures in the audience tonight? Now, not you, I brought you up in the trailer, that doesn't count. There was an uneasy buzz around the crowd. Would they turn on me? Would he shout those famous words? You cannot be serious. So we get to watch the pinnacle of British TV game shows, learn what youngsters in South Armagh get up to, and enjoy a tense game of tennis with John McEnroe. But first, at 10x9 Live events, I like to give the audience an insight into the other 10x9 evenings so they can hear the latest news from their favourite storytelling event. 10x9 is, we do it here in the black box and we do it in different festivals and the like, and... um, I did, I did one, a nice quiet one up in Corrymeela, up in Ballycastle a few weeks ago, which was very, very sweet, very gentle. And then did one last weekend in the Devonish, which just got completely <laughs> out of control. <laughs> yes, yes, that's me in some of those videos. That's why we don't do erotica at 10 by 9. Erotica. Ooh, what a thought. But hey, you never know. Anyway, if you're unfamiliar with the story, you might want to Google Devonish and strippers and you'll get an idea. But please, do not watch the videos. Anyway, that got the evening off to a raucous start and our first storyteller had a cracking tale to tell. Here's Dave Thompson. There comes a time when, as a young adult, you give up on going on holidays with your parents. Although there are some exceptions to this rule, like when they're going somewhere interesting or when they offer to pay for it or when you can't pay for it and they're going somewhere interesting. And so it was in July 94 that I found myself tagging along with my parents and my younger sister to a few nights in London, all expenses paid for, for me, but also for my then-girlfriend of a year, Lorraine. We had plans to see the tower, see a couple of shows, visit some shops, just the normal London stuff. But two particular events stand out. The first was when the three-room apartment my parents thought they had booked turned out to be one big room. (laughs) So Lorraine had an immersive experience living with the Thompsons for a few days. But the second was when we requested tickets from the BBC to see the recording of a TV program. Pre-internet, you wrote to the ticket office and you asked for seats on the night that uh, that you were available. The BBC would send tickets free of charge to whatever show was being recorded. Dad had done this before. He and Mum, I think, had seen a sitcom, maybe a game show, chat show, I can't really remember. It was nothing spectacular, but it was something that they had enjoyed 
uh, going to, seeing the, the, some of the great and good of, uh, of British television in the studio. And actually just being in a TV studio in itself was, was quite exciting. So we waited in anticipation to see what uh, show we would be sent. The BBC in 1994 had just begun filming The Vicar of Dibley. Allo uh, Allo was still in quite a long run. Noel's House Party was on the go. Big Break, snooker-based game show. Okay, so I'm very excited about that. And Turnabout, I'd forgotten about Turnabout. It was on the go. Eight seasons of big balls on a screen being turned over. Is that? Okay. Anyway, at last the envelope arrived. And we had been sent five tickets to see the recording of the first ever Pets Win Prizes. <laughs> we knew it was a pilot episode. We knew it was a game show. We knew nothing more about it except that Danny Baker was going to be the host and we knew him at least. So we weren't wildly excited about it, but still, it was a trip to the famous television centre, which in those days was still at the inappropriately named Shepherd's Bush. I just want to put this to the test. London W12. Thank you so much. Love we better audience participation. <clears throat> For those of you that don't understand why half the audience knows that, you can ask somebody later. We made it to London, and the night of the world's first ever Pets Win Prizes, and we filed into the famous Horseshoe BBC building and were ushered along several unglamorous corridors and then into a brightly lit studio. We took our places on the raked seats in front of a garish cartoon rural set. It was still exciting to be there, even if it was for something as, let's face it, inane as pets win prizes. To be fair to Danny Baker, he knew this. He arrived on set and announced something like, Welcome! Thank you all for coming to witness the absolute pinnacle of my career. <laughs> but on the upside, there was also Terry Nutkins, the wildlife presenter who helped manage the animals. I was pretty sure when I offered to write this story that I had enough of the details stored away in my memory. You'll see why in a minute. But I thought that I would just check YouTube to see if the recording was, uh, was still there. And it is. Not all of it. It's only 22 minutes worth. Um, but you can rest easy in the knowledge that every detail that I'm about to story tell here is, uh, is verifiably true. And then you can go home yourself and watch it later on. So the format of the show is quite simple. Five sections involving games with pets, uh, which qualified five pet owners for the final round. First up, according to YouTube, there was something to do with ferrets. I have absolutely no memory of that. But second, second was a game called That's My Stick Insect. <laughs> Three stick insect owners came on set. Danny Baker said to the first one, so tell me, how do stick insects enrich your life? To which the contestant replied, well, they don't really. <laughs> the contestants had their beloved stick insects hidden in one of nine glass tanks, and they had 30 seconds to identify which one was theirs. It's good TV, isn't it? Mark, tall, skinny, wearing a T-shirt, white T-shirt, with a picture of a stick insect on it, easily identified his twiggy. Nicola, slightly more normal looking, also identified her twiggy, which 
made us wonder what percentage of British stick insects were christened Twiggy. And the last contestant identified her Theodora. The game then went to a playoff. Contestants had to guess how many stick insects were in the tank. Nicholas said eight, got it right, and won the round, as well as a bramble bush for her stick insect. <laughs> Next up was Beat the Cluck. This is genuinely true. It's there. Go watch it. A game to see whose chicken could cluck most. <laughs> Apparently, this had gone well in rehearsal, but the bright lights and perhaps the pressure to perform before an audience seemed to mute the chickens. Tetley, the chicken, came first with only the faintest of clucks and won a super coop to live in. The fourth game was called My Dog Plays Snooker, Really. And really is in the title. I haven't just added that. Again, we were told this had gone well in rehearsal with dogs scampering around a large fake snooker table chasing balls into pockets. But now in front of the audience, the dogs were having absolutely none of it. Diffie scored three, despite looking rather petrified. Holly scored one by sheer dumb luck because the ball fell into a pocket without actually the dog having touched it very much. And Bruce, however, had picked up the scent of live chicken in the studio and was determined to locate the source. He was disqualified for jumping off the table. Someone in the audience asked if it would have helped to have chalked their noses. While the other games had been going on, a tortoise marathon had been taking place under the title Go Tortoise Go. Three tortoises had been set on a figure of eight racetrack. One went into its shell and didn't move. One moved very slowly, but Sophie the Majestic Tortoise took off. And at last, we had something to cheer about. Releasing all our pent-up energy from watching stick insect identification and silent chickens, Dad and I fully committed to yelling, Sophie, Sophie, until we were shushed by the floor manager. Sophie, Sophie. We obviously didn't dial it right down because when Sophie is declared the winner at 6 minutes 30 on the YouTube clip, you can hear Irish accents yelling in celebration. I swear to you, that's us. <laughs> Kathy, Sophie's owner, made it to the final. The only problem was we found her a wee shade obnoxious for winning the tortoise race. She was awarded a fridge freezer but then complained that what she really needed was a washing machine we began to regret cheering for Sophie. Although as the old saying goes, don't punish a tortoise just because the owner's a dick. <laughs> the final round was called the final furlong and it was just a quiz which seemed to really lack creativity to be honest. And Kathy won. Thanks for joining us. I told you I was going to win, she told Danny Baker. This did not make the final edit. I'm just giving you a behind-the-scenes gold nugget here. More creatively, Kathy's prize was to be chosen by the professor, a ginger cat who, for 30 seconds, would wander about a small segmented platform which would light up when the professor was standing on it. Whichever section of the platform was lit up at the end of 30 seconds would determine Kathy's prize. Terry Nutkins brought out the cat, who seemed to look as bemused as the rest of us. 
the cat, not Terry Nutkins. He seemed to be quite into it. Danny Baker, however, just continued to take the piss, declaring, the prize will be distributed by a cat. Hey! Now, I know this is a bit unusual for 10 by 9, but I feel we just need a little bit of um, audience game show participation here. So feel free to join in at moments where you want to. The lights lowered. The professor was lowered and moved onto the segment that said, Health Farm. <laughs> Before moving on to New York. Before moving on to Rome. Before moving on to Book Token. <laughs> which is where the cat rested until the time was up. We cheered Kathy winning a book token. It seemed like the perfect ending. With pets having won prizes, we shuffled out of the studio. We got on with the rest of our trip. But we continued to joke about, that's my stick insect, dogs playing snooker. And every so often, someone would randomly yell, Sophie! We still think of Sophie from time to time, almost 30 years on. Because, hey, if the game is fun, keep playing. Thanks so much, Dave. British TV, the best in the world, they say. Pets win prizes up there with Brideshead Revisited. Great story. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10x9, so if you'd like to tell your story like Dave, then get in touch at the 10x9 website. Even if it's just a smidgen of an idea in your head, I'll do my best to help you bring it all together. Okay, let's get on to our next story. And it was from a first timer. She had come up from the country to tell this. Here's Neve Kelly. Well, <laughs> you love your stories, don't you? <laughs> Here's another one. The boys in my school played a game, which I can only assume they invented. These boys and their game will be the stars of my story this evening, where I'll take you on a journey back to my primary school in the early 2000s. But more recently, I was thinking about this specific memory for my work. I was part of a project designing a cool new digital play experience for kids today. And to help us with this, experts from a play consultancy were brought in. They arrived on unicycles with hula hoops and taught us to do handstands. I wish. No, instead we had a presentation. <laughs> a very educational presentation that taught us a lot about play and about cognitive brain development through play, which I can honestly say I knew nothing about and I'd never thought about before, but it seemed really magic that this was all going on inside kids' heads as they were playing. And when I say magic, of course I mean science. And aren't we all here at the science festival for this 10 by 9? Sure don't we love a bit of science. The science magic in particular they were talking about was called free play. And this is where kids themselves, they decide how they want to play. So it's not about parents telling them what to do or like toy manufacturers trying to sell products or adults of any authority organizing and instructing fun. This, of course, is all about kids and their own exploration, their own agency, their own imagination. And of course, then, it turns out that there's loads of unreal benefits to this kind of play. 
So it helps develop children's like ability to identify risk and problem solve, navigate social conflicts, regulate their emotions and stress. So if there's any parents here in the room, the next time you're absolutely raging because your kid's drawn on the wall or just like wrecked the room, you're only after tidying, you have to cut them a wee bit of slack because there's actually a lot more going on there than what meets the eye. <laughs> Some people might be, you know, not taking that on board, but, but try. Um, but free play, so we learned that day, is very, very cool. And I think I thought that the play experts were going to have us like bopping about with hula hoops or like kicking the ball about. Like I, I was warmed up. I was ready for this. But they used like a different method. So they had us all close our eyes and think of a play memory from our own childhoods. And it turned out that this worked really well for everybody because your play memories are actually very strong. For mine, I was back in my little school. Um, a place where I had lots of happy memories and the one that stood out is the one I'm going to tell you about this evening. So the boys at my school played this game, which I can only assume they invented, called Silage Wars. And I've been talking long enough now, says you, that you can probably tell from my accent and my voice that I'm a bit culty. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, so I come from the beautifully scenic middle of nowhere, South Armagh. Oh, oh, are there any more South Armagh cultures in the audience tonight? Now, not you, I brought you up in the trailer, that doesn't count. I actually didn't, my friends are in the back. <laughs> but <laughs> for any non-cultures in the room, silage can be like a noun or a verb. So for the noun, that's the grass that's cut from the field, stored to make animal feed. And the verb is the act of cutting it. Silage is, in fairness, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> It's a bit of like a social event, really, if I had to describe it. It's the start of May, and the weather's good, so the farmers are all eager to stay up late into the night, cutting the silage before the rain washes away their opportunity, you know, really sees that weather. And actually, like, my cousins would kind of, like, stay up with their families and be out helping them into the wee hours. Kind of like an all-nighter, but with agricultural child labour. <laughs> I didn't say that. So that's the legendary act on which the game Silage Wars is based. The lore of it, if you will. How did it work, I hear you ask? What were the rules? Well, the boys in my school would pluck the grass out of the ground. And we had a big kind of like grassy bank in our schoolyard that we used to run up and down and all around. So the perfect setting for a game like Silage Wars. And so the boys would pluck the grass, just ripping it out of the ground, and they'd store it in heaps. And the aim of the game was to have the biggest heap of grass. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it was obviously very competitive. Who would reap the most silage of the season? Of course, there was grass everywhere. So, like, it wasn't exactly a limited supply they were arguing over, but that didn't stop the boys from stealing out of each other's heaps. This was silage war. What did you expect? Cut to eight-year-old boys running across the playground with, you know those, like, tennis bats you used to have in primary school that were, like, really hard plastic? They used to stack the grass that they were plucking on those and then run around with them to their heaps. And I just really distinctly remember how it fell out of the holes in this bat. 
So like all this, you know, cognitive development, I don't know what was developing in their brains, but maybe too many foods. I was no silage soldier, that's for sure. Despite being around a lot of farming, I can't say I ever took that much of an interest in it really, or maybe I just wasn't very good at it. Once I helped my uncle and my cousins move their cows. So that mainly involved standing in front of gates to people's gardens so the cows didn't go in or other people's fields. Um, I remember once, um, like, so to do this, to explain again, so you stand in front of the, the, the opening and then once they've passed, you kind of like overtake to get to the next one. And as I was overtaking one time and I was flanking the cows, my shoe came loose in the ditch. So I had to turn around and like run in the opposite direction of the flow of like the cow traffic. So this was, felt very awkward because it was kind of like, excuse me, sorry, excuse me, I lost my shoe. Not good, not good. But yeah, so for me, like, neither the silage war nor the silage itself really appealed to me. I had other games I wanted to play in school. I had wanted to direct little plays, little silly productions. I kind of made them up as I went along, but they were supposed to be funny. And I improvised with whatever settings we had, so like an empty classroom or the playground. So our plays were set in school. Um, and there was a head teacher who was a very strict and antagonizing kind of figure. That was somehow also me while I was directing. So I think maybe the kind of giving orders or something just went hand in hand, my bossiness. And then there were three Hallian students who <laughs> caused mischief and kept everybody in crack. So they were the main characters. The main actors in my play just so happened to be the very same boys playing silage wars. So you'll remember I'm from the middle of nowhere. It's a very small primary school. So we didn't have many options when it came to casting. The, pro <laughs> the problem was not only that they always wanted to play silage wars, but then they would bring their grudges back into the school. So like they became clicky and they just weren't speaking to each other all over the name of this grass. At lunchtime, Little director me started tactics to get them out of the field, friends again, and back on script. I started with whoever I thought was the easiest to convince. So there was usually one that actually I could sort of tell enjoyed doing the plays more. And then once I had one of them on board, that was it. So I would go over to the other one and say, Kevin said to me he's not playing Silent Wars at lunch. He's going to do the play instead. And then that was it. The operation had totally crumbled. So when I was in work and closed my eyes thinking about this play of memory and all the cognitive challenges my kid brain was going through, I now see that I was like a master manipulator. <laughs> as well as being a big culture. <laughs> I was navigating social conflicts, ready to bring everyone around to see my point of view, you know? Rally the troops, convince them to make up, make art instead of making a big old mess of the grass. They were back staring in my beloved productions of the Fartworthy Brothers in no time. A hilarious name, which I think I stole from Nanny McPhee. So I can't claim to have come up with that, even though I'd really like to, even today. Maybe especially today, as I'm telling you this now. But I can kind of see, you know, like, I don't remember the specifics of what was in the play, but I can kind of remember where everybody was placed. 
and I can see the classroom now and I can remember the feeling of like what a triumph it was getting everybody there and after all of that how much fun it was so I hope your player memories are are just as fun and the same thanks Thank you. Thank you so much, Neve. Wonderful. What a debut. The Silage Wars of South Armagh, eh? Because that's what South Armagh is so well known for. The South Armagh being really famous, of course, for its gorgeous scenery. Thank you so much, Neve. You really charmed the audience with that story. And what a great debut. I hope we'll hear more from you soon. Well, as you know, Tama is always free and always will be. But I just want to say, as always, a big thank you to everyone who has donated, whether through Patreon or has given at the live events. You really help us keep going, and we really appreciate it. Okay, on to our third and final story on this podcast. It was only his second trip to the Tama Nine mic. Here's Barry McDevitt, who starts with a shout out to the many Americans who were in the audience that evening. Okay, this story is for the Americans, or any Americans in the audience. Yeah, great, okay. This is for you, especially. John McEnroe. I am a keen tennis player. Not very good, but very keen. My heroes are from the 1970s and 80s. You may have heard of some of them. Rod Lever, Jimmy Connors, Beyond Borg and John McEnroe. About 10 years ago, I and other local tennis players were invited to be line judges at a big tennis event being held in the Odyssey Arena in Belfast, capacity five or 6,000. It was the European Senior Masters Tour for tennis players who a few years previously had been among the top players in the world. And I idolized them all. Pat Cash, Henri Leconte, Bjorn Borg, and John McEnroe. There were eight players taking part in the three-night event. They played a series of matches, and there was a lot of prize money at stake. This was my chance to be in the same court as my heroes. All of us line judges were a bit apprehensive. We'd never done anything like this before, and each of us wondered what it would be like to do a John McEnroe match. He would be playing several matches, so we would all get a chance. We knew about his reputation when he was young. You cannot be serious. The ball was in. He disputed many line calls in every tournament he played. But he was now in his 50s. Maybe he had mellowed. I had never umpired or even been a line judge at any tennis match before. So what would it be like if one of the greatest players in the world disputed one of my calls? Before the matches started on the first night, I saw Mr. McEnroe walking around the arena. He didn't look intimidating. He just looked like any other guy, about five foot seven inches tall, nothing out of the ordinary, and quite, in fact, quite insignificant. I thought, I'm taller than him, and I'm older, I won't be intimidated by this guy. Had he mellowed? 
Not a bit. On the first night, he disputed a number of line calls and lost his temper really badly. He was even warned by the umpire. The next night, I was assigned to do the baseline in his match. It was all going pretty well. The balls were either clearly in or clearly out or into the net. Nothing controversial. For those of you who have never umpired a John McEnroe match, <laughs> I can tell you that it is hard to know what to look for when you're at the baseline. Do I follow the trajectory of the ball? But these guys put so much spin on it that you don't know where it's going to land. Or should I keep my eyes focused right on the baseline? But if I do that, then I might miss the ball. So I chose to do a kind of mixture of both. At three games all in the second set, McEnroe at the far end of the court serving 30 all. During a fairly long rally, he had a forehand shot. I saw the ball bounce close to the line right in front of me. I closed my eyes momentarily like a shutter on a camera and tried to remember what I had seen. And I called, out! Someone in the crowd behind me shouted, that was never out. But he was the only one. I didn't flinch. The umpire called the score, 30-40. McEnroe stood, paused, looked in my direction, and waited for more people in the crowd to raise the heckles. There was an uneasy buzz around the crowd. Would they turn on me? Would he shout those famous words, you cannot be serious? But after about 30 seconds, Mr. McEnroe seemed to accept my decision, even though it meant he was only one point away from having a service broken, broken and going a game down in the match. I breathed a sigh of relief, worry over, or so I thought. Mr. McEnroe won the next point, which brought it to juice. Played another few points, but he still lost the game, so he was 4-3 behind. Now, if you know anything about tennis, at 4-3, that means that the players change ends. At the start of the next game, I knew he would be walking from the far side of the court right towards me to receive service, and he would be standing very close to me, very close. The temptation, of course, for me was to follow him as he got up from his chair and make eye contact with my hero. But I knew that if I did, he would focus on me and start a discussion about my dodgy line call. So resisting temptation, I looked elsewhere. It worked. He didn't say a thing. But the fear that he might have for a few moments was very, very real. This was the same guy who the previous night I thought was only five foot ten inches tall, very average in appearance, and pretty insignificant. Not when he is on the tennis court, I, I warn you. At that moment, I realized the fear that John McEnroe can instill into umpires and line judges. But I was lucky. I got away with it. Thanks so much, boy. What a great memory to have, and so many legends gathered together. Brilliant.
And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the upcoming dates on our website, 10by9.com, and be sure to keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and or Instagram, where I'll keep you up to date with any news. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen, especially Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory, and Chris O'Donoghue. Thanks to the beautiful people of the Black Box, the best venue in Belfast. Thanks too to the Northern Ireland Science Festival. It was a pleasure to be back with you. Thanks also to our amazing and supportive audience. You are far and away the best. Thanks to all our storytellers, of course. But the biggest thanks this week goes to Dave Thompson, Neve Kelly, and Barry McDevitt. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.